All right, welcome back in, everyone. You should have a set of notes. I'll introduce that series in just a moment, but let me remind you of some things that are coming up. Ladies, on Wednesday, this Wednesday is the uh, Ladies' Summer uh, Marriage Class. It's a class going through the book, The Meaning of Marriage, but it's broader than just the relationship of marriage. It's really dealing with biblical principles of relationship in general. In fact, a number of the ladies in it have said the principles that they are learning there are helping them with their other relationships. Also, many of the ladies that are attending, some of the ladies are are not married as yet, but they're taking this class wisely to prepare uh, for that time if that's what the Lord has for them. So you will benefit, ladies, if you come. I encourage you to do that 7 o'clock this uh, coming Wednesday. This Saturday is the Newcomer's Brunch at our house. And we would love to have you as our guest at 10 a.m. this Saturday for brunch so that we can get to know you better in that setting. We need to know how much food to prepare, so we need to know how many are coming. So let the folks at the Information Center desk know that you're planning to come so that they can put your name on the list and they'll give you an invitation that uh, gives you a map to our house, our phone number, a reminder of the date and time but it's this Saturday at 10 a.m. Now, for this class, uh, we just uh, finished a series on uh, on uh, anxiety, anxious for nothing. And then in the summer, we don't do any kind of an outreach series, like the anger series, like the anxiety series that we've done earlier this year. Uh, in the summer, I just do whatever I feel like talking about. And so for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. And the title of the series is, as you see on the screen, Positive Holiness in the World, but not of the world. And I'll explain why it is that that I want to do that. But here's the way the schedule is going to go. Uh, Today and then the following two weeks, we'll go through some of the material that you have in front of you, but we won't finish it. And then beginning three weeks from today, we'll have our newcomers uh, orientation. That's a four-week class during this hour for those who are new to our church to get more information about us, about what we believe and where we've come from and what we hope to achieve in the future, why we do things the way we do. It's to give you information to help you prayerfully determine, is this the place the Lord would have you grow and serve? So if you're new to our church and you want to know more about it, we offer that three times a year for you to get that information. So I lead that class for those four weeks. During those four weeks, beginning three weeks from today, we'll have four uh, guys standing in uh, for me. And uh, the first week, I can't remember, I probably shouldn't try. I think the first week is Steppenbacher. Dr. Combs, do you remember? Are you the first week? You're the first week. All right. So three weeks from today, you don't have to come. Combs is teaching. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Everybody wants to come when Combs teaches. So Dr. Combs will be teaching. And then the following week, on the 30th, we have a uh, missionary to India. Nathan Ida and his wife are going to be with us. Uh, Nathan is going to be leading uh, that week on the 30th. On August the 6th, Jim Steppenbacher will teach. And then the final, the fourth week on the 13th, Rich Carrico is going to teach. So those four guys are going to uh, teach for us. And then when I get back in here on the 20th of August, we will pick up where we left off on the material that you have in front of you. So you're going to have to keep that material for those four weeks and then bring it back on the 20th. If you don't, we'll have some extra copies for you. So today we start this series, three weeks, then we'll have a four-week break, and then we'll pick it up again on August the 20th. 
positive holiness in the world, but not of the world. Why? Why is this what I decided to uh, talk about for these weeks that I can just talk about whatever I want? Why is this issue of us understanding what it means to be in the world and not of the world, what it means to pursue positive holiness, which I'll explain in a moment what that means. But why is that important? Well, it came to mind recently as I was talking to a pastor friend. And he's a good guy, a very good guy. And he's on staff at a very good church. And we were just talking about spiritual matters and about church things. And I mentioned to him that our church is trying to, is looking to partner, network with some like-minded churches, primarily for the purpose of church planting and church revitalization. That is, helping churches that are struggling, starting new churches, helping churches that are struggling, and network with churches to do that. But that it's not so easy to find a network of churches that are theologically conservative. That is, they are, they are focused on truth contained in God's word, and they regularly teach that, and they seek to live by that. Theologically, biblically conservative. But secondly, they also actively engage in, I said it this way, exegeting the culture. And that was a, that's a fancy way of saying trying to avoid worldliness. Churches that are biblical but not worldly. Uh, and have, but have a proper approach toward the world. Now I explained to him that you can find churches that are committed, lots of churches that are committed to the Bible, believe the Bible, and they are concerned about worldliness, and they have their own way of trying to avoid it. And their own way of trying to avoid it is primarily an unwritten list of things that everybody knows you're not to do, things that you're to stay away from. So don't smoke, don't chew, don't run around with those who do kind of idea. And then there's a whole other long list of these things that you don't do if you're going to be, if you're going to avoid worldliness. Well, that is an improper approach to worldliness. We're going to see in this series that you are, we are, if we're going to be God's holy people, we do have to make standards, create standards for ourselves about things we're going to do and things we don't do. But that approach that looks at what the world does and simply says, whatever they're doing, we won't. That is not exegeting the culture in the ways that I'll define. So I said that to him. We're trying to find that, but there just aren't that many churches who get that. There aren't that many churches that are theologically conservative, but they get this whole thing about worldliness is a big deal. Worldliness is a big deal in the Bible. And we need to know what it is and how to avoid it by properly exegeting the culture. I say that to him. And he says to me, wow. I quote, I can't remember the last time I thought about worldliness. That's a quote. 
Now, I didn't say this to him. And as I say, he's a good guy at a good church. But, quote, I can't remember the last time I thought about worldliness. Now, here's the problem with that. To the extent that one has not thought about worldliness, they have also not thought about holiness. You can't think about holiness without also thinking about what holiness is supposed to avoid. Namely, worldliness. Now, why do I say that? Here's what holiness is. Holiness, the very word means to be separate, to be set apart. So as the Bible calls us, God, I'm quoting now, God's holy people. It's saying you are God's separate, set apart people. When the Bible says, be holy as I am holy, it's saying you are to be separate and set apart like I am, says the Lord. The Bible has much to say about this issue of being separate, being set apart. We sang in our worship service uh, today, holy, 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 from Isaiah chapter 6. And you remember Isaiah has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up and the, and the angels were flying a, a, around his throne and they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So this idea of being separate, being set apart, being holy is a big deal to God. And it's being separate, being set apart from something and to someone. It's being separate, set apart from sin and to God. Now, where does worldliness then fit into that? The Bible uses the term the world, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead. But it uses the term the world. Cosmos is the, is the Greek word. It's the arrangement of this world such that it expresses its sinful, fallen values. The world is most often used in the Bible in a negative way, as something opposed to God. So when we talk about the world and worldliness, we're not talking about the earth. We don't, we're not talking about the universe. We're talking about the arrangement, the sinful arrangement, the cosmos of the way sinful people think and talk and act in opposition to God. That's the way the Bible presents worldliness. So what we've got to do is be able to exegete, exegete that is, analyze, look at, and pick out those things that are happening around us that would fit the Bible's definition of worldliness Keep those things in the culture that are pleasing to God and reject those things that are not. And that requires an analysis. That requires, that's why I use that term, exegeting the culture. And over the weeks now that we go through this material, we're going to see the principles that undergird that, the teaching of the Bible that undergirds this, and then look practically at how you do this. How do you look at the culture we live in and make decisions about things I should do and shouldn't do? 
And in that way, we're going to try to achieve then positive holiness, being in the world and not of the world. So take a look at page one in your notes. And I'll explain what what I mean by the title positive holiness. The word holiness means set apart separate. To say that God is holy means he's not part of the universe. The universe is not part of him. He is unique. But his uniqueness is seen not only in the nature of his existence, that he sees every, everywhere he can do anything he wants, so he's unique that way, but also in his activities. He does not act like mankind. We sin, he never does. And therefore the word holy came to be applied to the apartness or difference between the character of God and the character of sinful humanity. Because holiness refers to being apart and separate, many of us have adopted the mistaken notion that holiness is primarily a matter of what we avoid. So if you ask most people what holiness is, they understandably will come up with something like, well, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. They'll have a list of don'ts. And it's understandable because the very concept of holiness means to be set apart, to be to be separate. So it's therefore defined in, in negative terms. And when I say negative, I don't mean bad. I just mean in what you don't do. This lesson is going to demonstrate that holiness is primarily a matter of what we are trying to accomplish in our Christian lives. And that which we avoid, that which we don't do, is a result of that positive goal. So the first point I want to make here, and thus the title, Positive Holiness, is that holiness is not primarily, it's not first and foremost what you don't do. Holiness is first and foremost what you're trying to do, what you're positively seeking to accomplish. And then because of what you're trying to positively accomplish, there are of necessity some things you don't do. But that's secondary. That's a byproduct of the objective. The objective is what it is we're trying to accomplish. So we need to have solidly in our minds that God is calling us to pursue this kind of positive holiness. He's giving us an objective to achieve that necessitates then some things we don't do. But if we get the mindset, and particularly if we teach our children, we teach our young people, that holiness is primarily just don't do this. And don't do what they do. If we if we give them that, they will reject it in large numbers. This is one of the reasons that there are these scary statistics about how many young people, as soon as they get the freedom to get out of church, they do. But I'm glad to say it's one of the reasons, if you were here in the first hour, you saw all those young people standing up here. Because our youth leaders understand this. They've taught this for years. And they've inculcated that in our young people. And we hope to see that continue for generations. But it's an important issue for us, and it's an important issue for us to then teach and model to our children as well. Holiness is first positive before it's ever negative. It's first what you're doing before it's what you're not doing. Now let's prove that. Page one, positive holiness and rules. Most of the Ten Commandments are stated negatively. Eight of the ten are what we should not do. So it's another reason it's understandable that when people think of holiness then, 
they think of, and when they think of the Christian life, <laughs> most people think of, man, you poor souls. You just got all these rules of stuff you can't do, man. You just keep, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's and watching your P's and Q's and hoping you don't step over the line and God's going to strike you with lightning if you do. And what a miserable lot you guys are. But, you know, if it gets you to heaven, I guess it's worth it. So more power to you. And, you know, good luck with all that. Because that's what many people think. And if they're familiar with commandments in the Bible at all, they're going to be familiar with some of the ten. Thou shalt not. Right? Over and over. So it is true. Eight of the ten commandments are stated in that negative way. But notice, Jesus saw the negative as a means to achieve the positive. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice this last phrase, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law And the prophets hang on these two. Now, the law and the prophets is this much larger body of material beyond the Ten Commandments. It includes the Ten Commandments. But when you read about the law in the New Testament, the law in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is referring not to the Ten Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments. It's referring to all the commandments in the law of Moses. And Moses wrote five, the first five books. And there are 613 of them. 613 uh, commands and prohibitions in the law of Moses. The ten are kind of a summary. And then the others are, given all of that on property rights, you don't steal, and family issues, you don't commit adultery, and you don't covet, and you, uh, in law courts, you, you can't, or anywhere else, you can't lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Now, this is how all that's going to play out in, in regular life. And so these other 600 and some are giving feet to detail to all of that. So you can think of the Ten Commandments as kind of a summary. Of all of this, but there are only 10 of 613. And Jesus says these two <clears throat> summarize all of the law and the prophets. Now, these two are found love the Lord your God. That's not found in the Ten Commandments. That's not one of the Ten. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20 and then given again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. But it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 that gives us the love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all of your soul. The one that Jesus is quoting now. 1,500 years later, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6 as the first and greatest commandment. And then that next one, love your neighbor as yourself, you notice that's in quotation marks as well. He's quoting from 1,500 years earlier. He's quoting Leviticus chapter uh, 18 that says, love your neighbor. 
And it's just the love of your neighbor is just kind of buried in there with a bunch of other stuff. And Jesus says these are the two greatest commandments. Love God, love neighbor. How can he say that? You say, well, he's Jesus, so he can say whatever he wants. But, I mean, how can he say that and be consistent? Well, here's how. Even if you take the Ten Commandments and you look at each of those Ten Commandments, four of them have to do directly with your relationship with God and six of them have to do with your relationship with other people. And Jesus is summarizing that if you love God, then you will not have any other gods before me. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You see, you've got all these negative things, things you don't do as it relates to God, but you won't do those things if you do this thing. Positively, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And likewise, if you love your neighbor, you won't steal, you won't bear false witness, you won't covet, you won't commit adultery. All of those things will fall into place if you do these two things. So you can see, even in the structure of the law itself, from which we get this idea that holiness is primarily stuff you stay away from, and the Christian life is this one big bunch of negative stuff you don't do. There are a lot of things the Bible says not to do, but they are all because of what it is we are to be doing. And chief among them, Jesus says, is love God. And then secondly is love others. Now, as an aside, every time... I quote that passage from Jesus in Matthew 22. I always want to kick this dog as I go by. There are people who teach that the Bible says that we are to love ourselves. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but lots of Christian teachers say that the Bible tells you to love yourself. And I'm saying no. Uh, In fact, the Bible condemns A day that will come when men will be, quote, lovers of themselves. The Bible assumes that sinful people already love themselves. But guess what's quoted to prove that the Bible tells you to love yourself? This thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible's telling you to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. Here's the problem. How many commands would that be? That would be three. But Jesus did the math for you. Because he says, on these, how many? There's only two commands there, not three. The Bible does not command you and never command you anywhere to love yourself. Now, to have an accurate self-image and all that is certainly biblical. To know that you're made in the image of God, that you have your identity in Christ, those are all very important concepts. But that's an accurate self-image, not a high self-image, not a love yourself self-image. So middle of page one, Jesus quoted two positive commands as encompassing the whole of the law, including the negative commands. Love God covers the first four. Love neighbor covers the last six. So what we avoid is the result of what we're trying to accomplish. Love for neighbor or love for God and neighbor. That's positive holiness and the way we look at rules. Now, positive holiness and reasons. Bottom of page one, although the Bible does not directly address every issue we face, It does cover all issues, either in precept or in principle. Now, I believe that thoroughly. That's why I believe in something called the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Bible is sufficient. The Bible contains all that we need for life and godliness. 
And I say that based upon passages like 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for, here are the last three words, every good work. How many good works does the scripture equip you for? Every good work. So that is why I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And that is why I say here the Bible addresses every issue. It doesn't address every issue directly, but it does address every issue directly or indirectly in either command or precept or in principle that needs to be applied to current circumstances. But when we face an issue, we usually ask this. As we're trying to reason through, should I do something or not? We usually ask the question, what's wrong with it? If you can remember when you were a teenager, some of our young adults are in here, so they can obviously remember it. Some of them still are teenagers. And then those of us that can remember when we were teenagers... That was something that would come out of our mouths fairly often. You want to do something, mom and dad say, I'm not sure it's a good idea. And then you say, what's wrong with it? That's usually the way we reason. And the idea is, if it doesn't violate any direct command, then it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Or to put it another way, if the Bible does not prohibit it, then it's permitted. If the Bible does not, and and usually I should add this word, directly prohibit it, it's permitted. And that's the approach many people take to the Bible. Where in the Bible does it say, I can't? Where does the Bible say felony home invasion is a sin? I mean, I know there's a bunch of man-made laws out there. That's why it's a felony. But where does the Bible say? I mean, show me chapter and verse where Jesus or somebody said felony home invasion is a sin. And you're going to go, boy, I can't come up with that one. But here's what you can do. You can and should show the person who says that. Uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. I quoted part of it in this morning's message. It's Galatians 5 where you have the fruit of the Spirit beginning in verse 22. But just before the fruit of the Spirit, the three verses before that, 19 through 21, tell you about the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh. And when it says flesh, it doesn't mean uh, your physical body. It's called the ethical flesh, sin nature. The acts of the sin nature are the, are obvious, it says, colon. And then it lists a bunch of stuff. And I had some of those on the screen for you today, this morning. Then you get to the end, verse 21. It says, bunch of lists, and then it says, and things like these. You see, the idea is not that God is giving you a catalog of every possible wrong thing you could do. God is giving you a sample list of the kinds of things That sin causes us to desire and do. And you're supposed to now use the principle out of that to look at things that are similar 
that are like that and then not do those. So the, what's wrong with that idea assumes that God has given you an explicit catalog directly telling you everything that you should and should not do in the Bible. The Bible is not constructed that way. The idea is that if it doesn't violate any direct command, it's okay. There's nothing, quote, wrong with it. But positive holiness requires that we only take an action because it is right. So, for instance, to eat or not to eat, that is the question. Top of page two. And you have this issue of stuff you should eat or not given in a few passages in your New Testament. And one of those is famously 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 begins this way. Now about food sacrificed to idols, colon. Now about food sacrificed to idols, colon. So following the colon is now going to be my Paul's uh, Instruction to you on this issue of what should you do with food that has been sacrificed to an idol. And he says there, first line, chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols, colon. The now about goes back to chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, which starts with the exact same phrase. Now about the matters you wrote about. That's a quote, colon. So here's what happened. The Corinthians wrote to Paul. And they said, Paul, we got, we got a whole laundry list of questions. You spent 18 months with us some time ago. You left, and we're a wreck. We need some apostolic wisdom. We're all arguing about these issues. We don't know what to do about them. So one of them is divorce and remarriage. So in chapter 7, that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is about. Now about the matters you wrote about, and that's the first one. And the whole chapter is about that. And then the next chapter, chapter 8, says now about food sacrificed to idols. So this is another one of those matters that they wrote about. Hey, can you help us out with like marriage and remarriage, divorce and remarriage? And can you help us with food sacrificed to idols? And he goes on for... Four chapters, 8 really through 11, because he deals with the Lord's table and eating at the Lord's table in chapter 11. And then when he comes to chapter 12, now about spiritual matters, spiritual gifts. So they had written to him and saying, we need help with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We need help with what to do with food sacrifice titles. We need help with spiritual gifts and what to do with those. And he spent three chapters on that. So we're a mess. Can we help you? Now, that starts in chapter 7. What were the first six chapters about? This is just a quick aside. The first six chapters weren't about the things they wrote to him about. They were about the things that somebody had gossiped to them about. I'm using that loosely. But it says in verse 10 of chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 10, some, I'm quoting, some from the household of Chloe have told me that there are divisions among you. So he then starts to address these divisions that are in the in the church. But how did he know there were these divisions? He wasn't there physically. He had left. He had been gone for a while. 
but some from the household of Chloe. We don't know who Chloe is other than she and her household are snitches. We know that. And they told Paul, we're a wreck, we're all divided. So he addresses that. And he throws Chloe under the bus while he does it. And then in chapter 7, he says, and then you wrote to me about some matters. Now here they are. Chapter 8, food sacrifice to idols. And as you go through chapter 8, you find Paul saying things like, look, food is just, it's just meat. And meat is, I'm paraphrasing, is just a physical, material thing. It has no particular power. It has no particular significance. Therefore, if that's all we have to deal with, there's no magic in this meat now. There's nothing demonic about this meat. There's no such thing as demonic meat. So if you can do what the Corinthians were accustomed to doing, getting meat at a discounted rate at the pagan temple in Corinth, because once it had been, the animal had been sacrificed at the pagan temple, they sold it out the back door for a discounted price. And people were accustomed to buying this. So now they're Christians, though. And somebody goes to somebody's house for dinner and they say, hey, this was offered to Zeus or enjoy. And the Christian goes, am I supposed to be eating Zeus meat? And this becomes an issue in the church. And they say, Paul, we don't know what to do about this meat that's been sacrificed to these idols. And he says, it's just meat. If that's the only consideration, then it's just me. Ah. But then he goes on to say, but that's not the only consideration. Because I know that it's just me. And now you know that, because I just told you, says Paul, it's just me. I know that and you know that. But knowledge puffs up, to use King James language. Sometimes what we know, we can use not in love toward others, but rather in harm to others. Knowledge creates this pride. Look, I know what this meat is. And just because you're so stupid, forgive the language, that you don't know that, I'm going to go ahead and eat my discounted meat, whether you like it or not. I'm not going to allow your stupidity your ignorance, to fence in my freedom. I'm free in Christ. This meat's available, Paul says. It's only meat, and so I'm going to eat it. Get over it. And Paul says, you know, there's another factor. What about love for your neighbor? Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. So love takes into consideration, you know, not everybody knows what I know about this. And they may see me do this and be emboldened to do something that violates their conscience. And therefore, I've got to take that into consideration as well. And then in chapter 9, he goes on to give examples of how he's done this in his own life. In chapter 9, he he talks about things that he has a perfect, legitimate right to do that he's chosen not to do. uses this phrase, but we did not use this right. 
I have a right to take a wife along with me. That's one of the things he says on my journeys. But I've chosen not to do that, not because it's wrong, but because there's a larger principle that I'm trying to pursue here. I can take money, he says, but I've chosen not to do that. And not only is there nothing wrong with it, he gives a discourse about how it's right to give money and and support those who, who teach you the word. That's not a plug for money for me. I'm just saying that's what it says. And he says that, but he says, but I did not use this right. The end of chapter 9, he says, I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. To those having the law, I became like one having the law. To those who don't have the law, like one who doesn't have the law. Everything that I'm doing, I am doing for the sake of other people because I love them for Christ's sake. So as I make decisions about what I'm going to do, even though the thing itself is neutral, it's just meat. And there's nothing intrinsically evil about doing it. There's a larger consideration. What does love dictate here in this context? So when he gets to chapter 10, and he gets toward the end of chapter 10, in verses 23 and 24, he says, all things are lawful for me. And if you were to look at those verses, you would see they're in quotation marks in the NIV. All things are lawful. Because he's quoting what they say. Now, can't you hear the Corinthians? Can't you hear some people in the Corinthian church? When Paul was here for 18 months and he gave us the gospel and he taught us, he was teaching us we're no longer under the law of Moses. And we have freedom in Christ now. What a glorious thing that we are free from the law and the penalties of the law and And the onerous restrictions of the law. We're free from that in Christ. Praise God. And so some people are saying, and now you guys are trying to lay some laws down. You're laying down some rules. Like I shouldn't eat this meat. When the truth is, all things are lawful. We're not under the law anymore. So everything's lawful. Say that. So Paul quotes them in verse 23, all things are lawful. And then he says, but not all things are beneficial. And then he quotes them again, all things are lawful. But not everything is constructive, he says. Not everything builds up. You know what he's saying? He's saying it's not enough to just say, hey, where in the law does it say I can't? It's not enough to just say we're no longer under the law, therefore there are no rules anymore. No, there are other considerations, chief among them, how you love God and love other people and how that's going to flesh out in your life. Therefore, let me, Paul, summarize this. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. You guys remember that? That's that verse that we do needlepoint on. You've got it in your, you know, on your wall. But that's a summary verse of everything I was just saying. Therefore, with this idea of eating meat offered to idols, and Paul adds, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, your consideration is, Can this be done? Is this being done to the glory of God? 
And when it says the glory of God, that's one of those churchy words that we use and we don't define. Um, In most contexts, here's what the word glory means. It means the display of the character of God. The display of the character of God. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. That is, all have sinned because they've fallen short of the standard of the character of God. So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, you only do it if it's going to display the character of God. Not your own selfish, hallelujah, I'm free, I can just do whatever I want. No, you display the character of the God who is love, who loved you, and now is calling you to display that love to others in the choices that you make. So to eat or not to eat, that's the question. So we ask, what's right with it? Is it going? And what's right with it means, am I dis- is this going to display the character of God in this situation? That's one major question. When in doubt, the Bible teaches, don't. Another passage that deals with this whole, what should I eat, should I or not, is Romans 14. And it says, of the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's eating, his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, to summarize that, everything that does not come from faith, if you're not sure about it, you don't do it. If you're not sure it's right, you don't do it. And in fact, people smarter than me say this. The Bible Knowledge Commentary summarizes the teaching of Romans 14.23, which is, by the way, the last verse in Romans 14. It's the concluding verse. And it says this, As Paul generalized, everything that does not come from or out of faith is sin. The principle is, when in doubt, don't, they say. So positive holiness and rules, reasons, and now quickly, yikes, righteousness. We see that we don't take a positive holiness approach in the way we look at rules, in the way we reason, but also in the way we look at righteousness. We look at righteousness as if I avoid the bad stuff, I'm righteous. It's not true. Yes, you have to avoid the bad stuff, but to be righteous, you have to do the right stuff. And that's why I have here the golden rule versus the silver rule. You've heard me say this before. Confucius lived before Jesus. Confucius said, quote, Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And yet we know the golden rule from Jesus as do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And people hear those and they go, those are the same thing. Jesus plagiarized Confucius. But they're really radically different because you can follow the silver rule, Confucius rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you by doing nothing. I mean, theoretically, you could sit in one place the rest of your life, starve and die, and you would have fulfilled what Confucius said. Because you never did anything that nobody wanted you to, to do to them. Jesus says, uh-uh, do. If you sit and do nothing, you've actually sinned. Because you have to actively, positively do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. So your righteousness is not just found in what you don't do. No, it's found in in what you actually do. We ask the question, do you have to be good to go to heaven? We understandably immediately answer no. Because we know we don't go to heaven because of our own good works. 
But the truth is the answer is really yes. You do have to be good to go to heaven. In fact, you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. Jesus said, Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how is anybody going to get to heaven? Well, you get positive righteousness from Jesus. Any of you who have recently joined our church in the last few years, you may remember this. When we have our interview with you, you fill out the one-page application. First two questions are, who do you believe Jesus is? Second question is, what has Jesus done for us? Almost everybody answers, he died on the cross for our sins, which is a good answer, a right answer. Uh, but it's an incomplete answer. He died on the cross for our sins, but I take time to explain to everybody who joins, do you understand that his death wouldn't have mattered if he hadn't first lived for you? He lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness. And when you come to him, not only do you get your sins paid for by what he did on the cross, you get the perfect life of Christ applied to you as well. That's how you're justified. That's how you're declared righteous before a holy God. So do you have to be good? You've got to be perfect. The good news is we get that perfection in the perfect life of, of Jesus. Righteousness, though, has to be positive. It's not just being neutral, not just having your sins paid for. So I say, see there, it's not merely having sin paid for, it's having perfection applied to you. So here's the conclusion. We can. This is why we say no to stuff. This is why we don't do stuff. This is why when I was a kid working at Murray's Auto Parts, which is now O'Reilly's, and I'm like 17, and they, they, my coworkers find out I'm a religious kid, and they find out I go to a Christian school, and they find out I go to church like four times a week, and so they find out, in short, I'm really weird. And after I've been working there six months, a year, something like that, one of them comes up to me and says, hey, a bunch of us are going out after, do you want to go out? And then they catch themselves and they go, oh, that's right. Your religion won't let you. Do you see what they think? Your religion won't let you. You poor soul, you've been raised by these pharisaical people that have given you all these rules, and you just can't have fun in life, man. But I respect that. See ya. But it's not that my religion won't let me. It's not that there's some list somewhere that's keeping me from doing. The things that we choose not to do are because of what we are attempting to do. Namely, please God and bring glory to God in our lives. We say no to things because we have a greater yes that we're pursuing. And it's not this miserable existence that people think the Christian life is. Our holiness is negative because it's first positive. Titus 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It teaches us both say no, but why do we say no? Because we are living these upright and righteous lives. The passage tells us say no because of what we're trying to attain, this kind of godly living. All right, we'll continue from there. Bring your notes back with you if you remember next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for instructing us in your word. Thank you for the precepts and the principles of Holy Scripture that guide our lives in everything. Help us to be people then who understand what you teach us about your holiness, about how that holiness is to be manifest, displayed in our own lives, and how we are to use your word. 
to apply its direct teaching and its indirect principles to the circumstances and decisions at hand. Help us to do that this week. We ask you grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.